Welcome back to the program. Kierkegaard said that life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forward. Such is the powerful value of memoir and reflection. Sometimes, though, that reflection takes in more than just the individual life. It becomes a way to reflect on a time, a place, and a movement. Gail Sheehy's life encompasses all of that. The mainstreaming of hippie culture, feminism, new journalism, publishing, all exist side by side with the touchstones of love, loss, and family. Her story is, in short, the story of the past 50 years, a grain of sand that captures the history of a time. Gail Sheehy is a renowned author, journalist, and lecturer. She's changed the way millions of women and men around the world look at the stages of their lives. She's interviewed thousands of women and men, written 17 books, and her book, Passages, has been named as one of the 10 most influential books of our time. It is my pleasure to welcome Gail Sheehy back to this program to talk about her newest work, Daring My Passages. Gail Sheehy, thanks so much for joining us. Well, hello, Jeff, again. It's lovely to be here. Great to have you here. As you were working on this project and looking back, particularly at the period in the 70s and even into the 80s, was there a danger, a tendency to, to romanticize that period in some way? Because it, our fascination with the 70s is really about the fact that it was a time of such aspiration and such possibility, even though it was difficult in so many ways. Well, everything was changing, Jeff. That was what was so thrilling about it. And sure, you felt like you were suspended in midair half the time. There was the fear that, you know, if you were in the middle, you were going to get shot because <laughs> we're extremists on both ends. Um, men and women didn't know where they were in, response to, in you know, relation to one another. The women's movement was exploding. I call it an earthquake of gender. Um, you know, I didn't know whether to um, let a man open a door for me or to kick him in the you-know-what or <laughs> to um, pretend I wasn't a feminist so he wouldn't be scared of me. I mean, it was, and there was a civil rights movement, and that was thrilling. Um, suddenly, people of color were, you know, I remember seeing Bill Cosby the first time at the Village Vanguard and saying, oh, my God, you know, this is a star. And then the next thing you know, he's on on television. So it was a, it was a period of incredible uh, change, excitement, aspiration, a huge generation, um, very self-obsessed, of course. Um, and political change, assassinations. Mm-hmm. We had Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy assassinated within the same within two months, and only five years after JFK had been assassinated. I mean, you couldn't have a more dramatic uh, and traumatic, in often ways, um, period of history than the '60s and '70s. Well, I, I say that, but of course. I wasn't alive during the Second World War. I was alive, but I wasn't involved. So that, again, is a, a, a clue to our narcissism uh, that uh, it's not the most uh, dramatic period in history, but it certainly was in the last half of the 20th century. And as you thought about it, as you were working on this, this memoir, to what extent do you think that you and others were aware of the ch- these dramatic changes that were taking place, even as we all existed in the crucible of that change? I think that's a wonderful question, Jeff, because it was writing this memoir that made me realize how radical and how rapid were the social changes on so many fronts. Uh, and 
I, I didn't realize how I coped until I was almost finished with the memoir, and the way I coped was to be daring, um, you know, to just take another leap, try something new, uh, take another chance. Uh, it, it was, it kind of went with the times. When the waves are rolling in and they're really big, you better ride those waves or you're going to go under there is the sense, and maybe it, it comes back to this idea of romanticizing this time, but there is the sense that any of us that got through that period and, and operated in that time had to be daring. You had to be daring to survive, to move forward. I'm not sure that's as true today. Well, I hope it will. That's one of the reasons I, I make talks about this book all over the place, and I encourage people, I encourage parents of people in their 20s, to encourage their kids to be more daring because I think in a period now that is frightening on a global level in terms of you know, terrorism, pandemics, climate change, so on, and the economic um, near disaster that we came close to only, what, uh, six years, seven years ago. A lot of young people, I think, are just looking for, oh, wait, i got to go to law school. Uh, you know, i got to get a safe job. I have to go in the financial industry. Um, you know, I've got, got $27,000 of uh, college debt on my back. I, I've got to grab something secure. i got to get out of mom's basement. But actually, the 20s are the time when you have to be daring or you're going to get locked in, and it's going to be harder and harder to get out once you are responsible for other people, once you have a family. In the 20s, if you fail, and you need to fail in your 20s, so you find out you don't die from it, um, you don't, you're not going to hurt anybody else. Uh, and that's really important because that's how you learn. You really don't know what you don't know in your 20s. Right. And you find out by trying, taking risks, failing. I failed and you know, then succeeded and failed. I have a whole chapter called Failing Upward. You know, how do you use failure to move yourself ahead? And that's one area where maybe it is different in a better way today. I mean, you talk about, even within this sense of daring, that you felt certain obligations in your 20s to get married, to have kids, that it was expected. Nowadays, not so much. And there is certainly more freedom in that regard today. Well, absolutely. Um, people are getting married at least five years older than they did when I was in my 60s. When I went in the 1960s, when I was in my 20s, um, and I, it seems like you have to have more education. You have to have more time to try out different career paths, and you can't really oblige yourself to even marriage, never mind having a child, until you know more about where you're going, and because you have all this college debt. Uh, so it seems like. You know, more people are getting married in their late 20s, uh, or they're not getting married. 41% of women are having a child in their 20s without an, a partner, without an, a present partner. Uh, maybe somebody who's just living in, but no commitment. That's not a good. That's not a good trend. I was a single mom starting at 28 when my marriage blew up and my husband was unfaithful, and I felt I couldn't live with it. And I'll tell you, I was a single mother for 15 years, and that was no picnic financially. It was a very exciting period uh, professionally, and it became, I had a tempestuous romance with Clay Felker, who was 
my mentor as the editor and founder of New York Magazine and later husband. And that was a time in the 70s where most people had something tempestuous in their <laughs> romance life because nobody was getting married and so many people were getting divorced and we were having all kinds of experiments. But all through that, I was supporting myself and a child with no help. And that was really tough. And so, and that you don't have enough time with your child if you're, you know, just knocking around trying to earn enough to get by and put your kid through decent schools. Of course, the divide today is so much wider between the haves and the have-nots, between the mothers that are, that are struggling to get by as single mothers and those that are uh, practicing leaning in. Right. It's huge, and that's why the leaning in uh, philosophy is a, is a great one for people who are privileged and have very good educations and some money behind them and uh, can afford to have the kind of help they would need to uh, pursue a career, you know, that's 85% of what they do, even while they have a child or children. Um, but that only really applies to a very small percentage of, what, maybe 10, 15% of uh, privileged women, if there are that many. And the rest of us have to really work harder to um, have what matters. I'm, I speak out against subscribing to the fantasy of having it all. I think that's an illusion that's probably going to make you unhappy. Um, what's much more important is having enough and having the right things. And often it takes until, you're, until midlife, certainly did for me, to come close to having a marriage, a good marriage, uh, a, a child or children, and a flourishing career. Uh, that didn't happen to me until I was 47. Uh, Hillary Clinton, who I followed for 10 years, and I've written about her in the mm -hmm. book, uh, looking at an overview of her life, she wasn't didn't feel independent until she was 53, as she told me, the day that uh, Bill Clinton was about to be impeached and she was starting her, uh, her uh, campaign for U.S. Senate. Uh, Margaret Thatcher only became... Uh, Prime Minister when she was 53. So it takes a long time. But fortunately, women's lives in particular are long and have many seasons. So, you know, postponing marriage and even postponing having children uh, until you're more established with what you want to do and how you're going to pay for it is a, is a very wise choice. I want to talk a little bit about your professional life that you write about, because one of the other things that seems different today, particularly from the period that, that you write about so much in the 70s and 80s, is a sense of access as a journalist and a sense of being more connected to so many other people and so many aspects of what's going on. Things today are so much more siloed for everyone professionally. The, the good side of it is that Everybody who has a computer has a chance to be a blogger. And blogging may, if you're good at it, if you have a natural ability to be a writer and a researcher and a talker, you know, you can build a, some uh, face, some notoriety, and maybe get uh, move up and get your own radio show or your TV show or um, contributing editor to a, a, a publication, uh, manager, editor-in-chief of a... A successful website, or um, but 
there's also the aspect that, you know, there's so many people who aren't paying for writing. You know, the 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 advent of the Internet and Huffington Post and Daily Beast has meant that writing has been devalued as a paying career. Um, when I was in my 20s, I used to get 2500 5000 maybe even eight or $10,000 for a long story in a magazine. Well, that's, you know, there are very few outlets that pay today or and pay better than that. I mean, you're talking about Vanity Fair, New Yorker, The Atlantic, um, and, you know, maybe the New York Times, but they don't really take freelance contributors often. So you have to scramble. And I don't think you can really make it as a freelance writer, as a young person today. Talk a little bit about looking back at so many of the people that you talked to over the years, that you interviewed over the years, people like Mikhail Gorbachev and Margaret Thatcher, who you mentioned earlier, and and the influence they had, the way they really changed the world. Well, they really did, and I loved Margaret Thatcher's story. I, I had the privilege of spending a month in London when she was at the peak of her powers, her 10th year in office, uh, and uh, she was... Um, <laughs> the amazing thing was people were talking about her as being sexy. Um, there were men who worked for her. She called them her star boys. She surrounded herself with men who looked like 1930s American matinee idols. Uh, and one of them said to me, well, I find Mrs. T sexually attractive in a rather packaged way. I said, what? Margaret Thatcher sexy? But it turned out I did notice that she looked 20 years younger than when she first entered office, and I found out that she relied on a, an Indian woman named Madame Veronique who gave her electrical baths. Well, she, I found, you know, took a false identity, got myself into her salon. She told me to strip and get into her bath and climb the steps. I was standing there shivering with fear and thinking, I've done a lot of things to get a story, but I think electrocution is beyond the pale. <laughs> and she said, my dear, I've had kings and princes and little bitty emirs in that tub. Step in. And I did and was parboiled for the next hour. But I also learned about Thatcher's relationship with Mikhail Gorbachev. And that was one of the most effective and fascinating relationships in history. Um, they were really magnetically attracted to each other. Thatcher, and I would talk to her about this, she picked Gorbachev out when he was just a provincial party boss, waiting for and drop off uh, the premier to drop off, which took a long time. Before uh, Gorbachev became the head of the Soviet Union, she invited him to London, took him to Chequers. They didn't eat any of their food, they drank brandies all night, and she talked to him about capitalism. He asked her, you know, why Europeans didn't take Russians seriously as Europeans. And she said, nonsense, you'll never be accepted by Europe until you lift the Iron Curtain. And they had subsequent meetings in which he asked her, how did, this, how did the United Kingdom let go of its colonies, and still maintain its stature in the world as a world power. And she explained it to him and began softening him up on letting go of the Eastern European satellites. 
And only after she had gone to Russia and talked to him more about this and gotten him all warmed up was she able to tell her other heartthrob, Ronnie, as she called President Reagan, uh, that Gorbachev was ready. And that's when Reagan went to the Berlin Wall and said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. So the two of them, Gorbachev and Thatcher, you know, with her acting as the go-between with President Reagan, brought about the end of the Cold War. As you look back at that period of time, is there anybody that you would have liked to have talked to or spent time with or interviewed during that period that you didn't? Oh, I certainly would have loved to have interviewed Jacqueline Kennedy and John Kennedy. Uh, I would have loved to interview Jacqueline Kennedy after the assassination of her husband. In the current Vanity Fair, there's a fascinating uh, story about how depressed she was, how she drank, how she was isolated, how she even had thoughts of suicide. Uh, and yet she pulled her life together and became a book editor and, um, you know, went, suffered through a marriage to Aristotle, which was just a safety marriage, turned out to be horrible. But how she coped as the figure that America depended upon to carry us through our years of grief uh, and trauma after her husband's death um, is a is a really fascinating story because she wasn't, you know, she she didn't want that role, but she carried it off. Who else would I? I'd like now to interview Putin. Mm -hmm. I don't think he's giving any interviews to right. American <laughs> journalists uh, and to um, Russian women who have written biographies about him have mysteriously died. So it's not, it's not <laughs> enticing as an interview prospect at the moment. But you mentioned your husband of, of many years, Clay Felker, who you had a long relationship with, both as, as a husband and also working with. Talk a little bit about the people that you lost along the way and how, how you look back on that, how it's impacted on how you see the world today. Well, that's very great pain in life. Um, some of the, fortunately, I haven't lost a great many people, but I did lose Clay, and I hung on to him for a long time. He was ill with cancer for 17 years, off and on, and we changed our lives dramatically uh, when his second cancer was diagnosed and uh, left New York and the publishing world we spent 30 years building reputations in and moved to Berkeley, California, near you right. to for Clay to start a magazine program at the University of California Journalism School, which gave him a new sense of life and purpose and excitement uh, and gave me uh, the thrill of being in another part of the world that I adored and uh, go back to. I spend um, vacation time out there in Sausalito and Berkeley. Uh, and we actually... Those 10 years, while he still had cancer, and it recurred again uh, while we were there, but the lymphoma that we went out there to counteract never did come back in that environment. And he had 10 wonderfully satisfying, productive years before he had to retire. And I wrote five books. So Northern California was very good to us. <laughs> and we... We gained as opposed to losing. But the, I, I, when you're talking about losing, 
I just had an email from a dear, dear friend, another woman writer uh, who lived in lived in Aspen. I used to go and stay with her there. Uh, and she wrote to me after a year of having losing a fight against lung cancer to say that hospice has been called and she was resting comfortably at her sister's home and that she wasn't afraid when she was saying goodbye. And that was just like a dagger in my heart because I was so far away, but at the same time it was reassuring that she had found the comfort that so many people don't, which is how to die at home uh, and be comfortable, surrounded by family, and have hospice or palliative care. You talked a little bit about this earlier when we were talking about young people today. Tell us about this daring project that, that you've been involved in and trying to, to capture that sense of, of daring, particularly for young people today. Well, that's my whole purpose now is the SheHeDaringProject.com. It's a website, and I'm inviting and encouraging uh, women of all ages, but particularly young women, to send in their daring stories. Uh, even if it's the, the first daring, you know, the daring to have a nose ring when you know it's going to freak mom out, uh, but it's your way of demonstrating your independence. Um, and I have some wonderful young women's stories up there and older women. Um, the one woman um, was in Northern California. She had, was biking. Uh, she was run over by a truck. She survived and was so uh, thankful that she and her boyfriend bought a huge RV and decided they were going to live in it and drive across the country. Well, they broke up before the trip started. So she suddenly left with this 600-pound home on wheels with a cab higher than her legs to get into, but she decided she was going to dare to drive it across the country herself. And she hooked up with a guide to wineries and farms that like to receive visitors who were driving across the country and would put you to work. And she became an ambassador for a couple of wineries uh, and loved it, uh, made friends, made turned other women on who were either divorced or widowed and looking for something exciting to do about getting their own RV and how to travel safely, uh, and started a whole new life. So those kinds of stories are inspirational and uh, exciting to people to read and act on. And therefore, I'm asking, cajoling, (laughs) begging women to send in their daring stories to me uh, on my website, Sheehy Daring Project, S-H-E-E-H-Y, D-A-R-I-N-G Project, SheehyDaringProject.com. Gail Sheehy, her new memoir is Daring My Passages. Gail, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Lots of fun being with you, Jeff. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 